have you ever felt used? This is the best question I know to get into the heart of Jesus' love and what his love was about. Have you ever felt used? Have you ever felt like you were just there to fulfill someone else's desires, like a cog in someone else's machine? Have you ever felt like you were a tool and your value as a human being has never or was never seen? I've been in a few work environments. I've, I've worked with a few different employers where this became abundantly clear to me. I mean, I thought that things were going good. I thought that we were having like a, a good connection. And then all of a sudden I realized out of nowhere, like, oh, like this person really doesn't see me. They don't really value me for the gifts that I have to offer. And um, gosh, again, this is another other stories that I just want to tell, but these are being recorded publicly. Um, <laughs> but have you ever felt that? Have you ever been in a situation where you go, you know what? I thought that I was in a relationship or a, an environment where this was, this was going to be good for me. This is going to be healing and hopeful. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, someone reveals to you that you're just another means to their bottom line. This is the kind of love that we're used to in this world. This is the kind of love that human beings often experience. And so when we say the word love, when we get into it, we have to rescue this word love out of all these experiences that have um, taught us to be a bit cynical. And, um, and in our culture today, I believe we're waking up to this kind of dynamic. We're waking up to this reality that there are powerful people in the world that like to pull strings, and we oftentimes end up on the bottom of these, these strings. And because of that, we, we get a little jaded, a little cynical. Is, is pure, perfect love even possible? And it takes actually quite a bit of work, um, I think, to get from where we're at today into the heart of Jesus' love. So let's explore. Let's dip in. We're going to start in the middle of his life today. He's, he's done a lot of healings. He's attracted huge crowds of people who understand that he's there to give something. Um, this is the part of his life, if you know Jesus' story, he starts off being baptized by his cousin John, and he... Um, he goes through a lot of different uh, kind of experiences in his kind of home region, which was called Galilee. And uh, he gets to this part where, where lots of people begin hearing about him and gathering around him. And he begins to start saying some harder things than he has before. So um, if, if you remember Jesus saying things like, take up your cross and follow me daily. Those who will lose their life will find it. Those who try to find their life will lose it. Um, this is where he begins to talk to his disciples about the lowest in his kingdom is actually the greatest and how to forgive in a way that just shatters all human understandings of forgiveness. And so as we do so, we have to remember that as he begins speaking these hard words, we're also entering into one of the most gut-wrenching moments of his own personal life. And as we do so, as we enter right into the middle of this story, we all are entering into the last days of his cousin John the Baptist. So we're going to jump in at Matthew 14 today. But when the king's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company, and she pleased him so much that he promised an oath to grant her whatever she might ask. So here we have a king, King Herod, if you, if you remember your history, King Herod, his wife, 
and a daughter who's dancing for him. This is a Jewish king, someone who's supposed to be representing God to the world. Prompted by her mother, this stepdaughter of the king said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. This is Jesus' cousin who's in jail. Herod has him. And here's, here's uh, the wish of this daughter, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was grieved. He didn't want to do this. He knew that it would be a bad political play to kill John at this moment. Yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. The head was brought on a platter, grotesque, and given to the girl who brought it to her mother. His disciples, John's followers, came and took the body and buried it. And then they went and immediately sought out Jesus and told Jesus what had happened. And now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. Heartbreaking for Jesus to hear this. He had to get away to go find some time alone. So, a little bit more about this all. John, John is Jesus' cousin, as I've said, and he's, he's been uh, captured by King Herod here, uh, this, this king of the region that Jesus was, that grew up in. He was in jail. Now, the story of this, this Herod is actually really twisted, and I'm just going to give it to you really quick, not un, uh, like expecting you're not going to understand. This is like, like 10 years of Days of Our Lives in one moment. <laughs> okay, you ready for this? Anyone here, Days of Our Lives, watch us out. You don't have to, don't have to tell. Um, so here you have this pretender king who's really under the Roman rule. You have John publicly condemning this guy, pointing his finger at him for illegitimately marrying his half-brother's sis- his wife. I can barely get it. So he wanted to marry his half-brother's wife, each sharing the father, Herod the Great, who had five wives, and these guys were all from different mothers. It's a mess. It's just a mess. Right? And it's forbidden. This kind of arrangements are forbidden in Jewish culture. And um, there was deep evil you could see at work in this dynasty. And so here you have a brother and sister-in-law who had married one another. While that brother was still alive, by the way, Philip was the first, wife, first husband of this woman. And here you have them in an illegitimate, mar- in an illegitimate marriage in an orgiastic kind of party with his stepdaughter dancing probably half naked before his partiers, his, his um, wife being completely at wrath because John has publicly exposed them and shamed them. They have him in jail. And Jesus knows about this whole affair. Like he knows what's happened. He knows his cousin's in jail. Um, and at, at the culmination of this all, Jesus and John are going to stand up and point a finger at all of this unlove that's happening. All of this, do you, see, do you see here, I'm trying to unpack this for us this morning, get us going in this idea of, of love and unlove. You've got lust, you have power, you have luxury, you have someone being used for other people's pleasure and interests, you have the wrath of a, of a woman who couldn't uh, take the truth that she was in an illegitimate marriage. And, Paul or, and John and Jesus are going to be courageous enough to stand up against it. Because they're going to say, this kind of way, this kind of experience, this kind of um, intrigue is the thing which is killing the world. 
And there's a whole other way of being which is going to bring life to the world. And it's going to be, I'm going to call it selfless love. I'm going to call it taking up your cross daily and following me. And it's easy to listen to a story like this and go, okay, that's extreme, right? Like I'm not in an illegitimate marriage with my half, you know, half brother's wife. <laughs> uh, it's hard to see that day in and day out, we are contributors to unlove in this world, in our relationships, in our workplace. It's difficult to, to turn the, the light in on see that. So I'm not going to do that quite yet. But the best way to understand that this was happening in Jesus' day and it's happening in our day is to ask the question, how am I being used? If you ask that question, if you pull the strings on those questions or how have I been used, you can begin to see these patterns unravel before us. And what's really kind of heartbreaking for me is that so many of us are so used to this kind of experience and so used to these kinds of patterns of unlove that I said before that we're getting cynical. We're getting cynical that can people really love us after all? And I think that's beginning to harden at a societal level our hearts in a way that makes us really not trust each other. Like, I know that people use me and so um, I, we have a harder time experiencing and receiving the real thing more and more, I think, as our culture becomes aware of these power plays and being used. And I think it makes it hard to feel loved by God because in the hard moments, in the times when things get really rough, we begin to ask that question, God, are you just using me? Am I just a tool in your economy? Am I just someone who you're toying with for your bottom line? Do I really matter? Am I someone to you? And we have these questions, whether we know it or not, kind of reverberating around in our hearts. And it was in John's day, and it was in Jesus' day too. They knew what they were up against, and they were both going to get killed for it. So when Jesus heard this, when Jesus heard what had happened to John, the whole story of it all, it broke his heart in two. It says he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. This was the moment where Jesus needed to get away from it all. I mean, have you ever been in that moment? Have you ever have, have been so shocked and grieved by something that happened in your life? You're like, I can't even cope right now with my life. He had to get away. He had to go. And so he says he got into a boat and to a deserted place and withdrew. And we get this image that it wasn't by himself. It was with his disciples. If you read the narrative, himself meant without all the clamoring crowds. He took his disciples away. Uh, Mark says that Jesus took his disciples away because also they were in a part of ministry where so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have time to eat. Okay? So we get this, this moment of Jesus' life. He's heard of his cousin John's death with all this intrigue with this Jewish king who was supposed to be representing God. And he was so exhausted from all the ministry, he needed to get away. So he set off by himself in a boat with his disciples, a boat that may have looked like this. And just as a little aside, you kind of get here Jesus' value of Sabbath and his retreat coming through. When you are, as a human being, at the very end of what you can handle, you should take some rest. Jesus sought it. If Jesus sought it, so should you. He needed a retreat with the people who were closest with him. He needed a retreat to get away to, he went camping, basically, the, the scripture said. He went camping with his disciples to get away from it all. 
And as Christians, sometimes we, we get so much into the, the work of God and doing stuff for God that we forget that our, our hearts in this world get so battered and so broken down that from time to time, we need retreats. I have uh, one Thursday every month where I just need to be alone. <laughs> and I go out to Boulevard or somewhere, and I just kind of take some time on myself. What's your retreat? Have, where is that in your life? I would invite you to think about it. Um, I, I would really love to go exploring more in the bush here, but I don't have a dog yet. <laughs> I'm not, not going to be at peace in the bush of northern Ontario without a dog. So if anyone has a solution for me there, I, I can't have a dog. My wife is allergic. But if you have a solution for me, let me know. little public service announcement. <laughs> so take some retreat. Jesus did. But here he goes. He values it. He hears John was dead. His heart was broken. It says he goes to a solitary place. But something happened that must have just made his heart break in a way. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Jesus, he wasn't, he wasn't uh, like letting everyone know where he was going, but apparently he wasn't concealing it. They must have gotten in the boat, started rowing. Someone on the shore said, there he goes. We got a sight on him. And Galilee's not too big, he can go kind of follow a boat to where it goes. And it would, the, the scriptures tell us that ultimately 5,000 men, plus women and children, are going to come to Jesus. This is the moment in his life when he feeds the 5,000. This is a hugely important revelation into Jesus' love. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from their towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd had already gathered and he had compassion for them. And he cured their sick. I could just get this image of Jesus pulling up on shore in the shallows of Galilee. Uh, clamp, and, and people begin to clamor after them. He sees their sick. Um, he sees people who are hobbling out. He sees their friends who have brought them out, to, them out to Jesus. He sees people who have leprosy. And instead of saying to them, okay guys, sorry, I need a break. My heart is breaking. Instead of saying to them, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus is closed for business. Instead of saying to them, uh, go, go back to your home and I'll come visit you later. Jesus says, bring them to me. And we have this image of him going around healing sick people. But it's not just that. It's not that he just helped them begrudgingly or went on anyway because that was his duty. It says he had compassion on them. You see the amount of selflessness that's happening in this moment. Uh, this, is, this is the moment where Jesus had all right um, not to want to, to engage, but he engaged anyway. This is cross-likeness. I, I will give my life for them, lived out. He's choosing the hardest path. He's finding God and beauty in all sorts of probably grotesque people. He's choosing the hardest way rather than the easiest. Rather than luxury or power or pleasure. I mean, Jesus maybe should have gone to the Hilton for this retreat or wherever. Instead of finding that, that comfort and, and, and uh, luxury, he's out here among people who, with bleeding sores. Probably not a pretty sight to look at. There's so much in this one phrase here. He has compassion on them. On all four Gospels, make this connection for us. That this is the kind of selfless, 
healing love that Jesus has. This is where I begin to invite us to imagine receiving this kind of love. This is the kind of love that is opening the heart of the Father. There's no infatuation. It's, this is so different than romantic love, desire, so much different than what we think of as love. Jesus comes to us in all of our brokenness, in all of our raggedness, in all of the ways that we are unlovely and wounded, and just when we think he might have had enough of us, he opens his heart and heals us and puts his hand upon us again. This is so different, really, really different than the kind of love that we know. I mean, part of the job here with, with getting into this idea of love is to rescue this word. I mean, here's some words that, in my mind, describe the kind of love that we're used to. Infatuation, attraction, grasping after our own needs, lusts, bodily passions, desires, taking our rightful share, the feeling of emotion that we get with intimacy, chemicals firing, romantic feelings all over the place. I love you. I love you. What do we mean when we say, I love you? And do we mean it like Jesus would have meant it? Because here's the thing. All of these affections and attractions and the feeling kind of love, it all passes. It all goes away. The high that we get when we, when we are in love with someone, it just it goes away. And what we're left with is the question of can we be with someone at their worst? Can we stay faithful to someone when they are at their worst? That's what we mean by love. Can, can you realize that you maybe have been in a position in your life where you are at your worst? And can you realize and imagine that Jesus is right there close to you in it all? Um, so when the high fades of that kind of love, what do we do? Oftentimes we lash out because like, we're not getting what we want. We're not getting anymore what we thought we signed up for. And I, you know, I think of, of the story of, of John the Baptist and his intrigues. Uh, sorry, uh, of King Herod and his intrigues. You know, this, this, this wife of his, which um, didn't like to be told that the marriage was illegitimate, this wrath that she was nursing towards John. I mean, how oftentimes are we in a relationship and it's just going so well because it's nice and fuzzy and warm, but then when the rough parts hit and the ugly parts come, do we feel immediate contempt because I'm not getting what I need from this person anymore? This is the string kind of love that I'm pulling out from these stories, okay? Um, so the minute that we begin thinking, okay, we've mastered love, we know what it's actually about, we have to remember that it's like the hardest teaching in the whole of the Bible. Willingness not to, to give, I mean, not to take, but to give, like finding joy when other people have good, good things happen to them. Um, the reality that, that if I really love someone selflessly, that that God could actually be showing his love to them through me. Faithfulness. Um, this is the kind of love, I believe, which lasts. This is the thing which changes the world. This is the thing which takes us out of our human intrigues and into the heartbeat of the kingdom of God. That other kind of love, it goes away. It burns off. 
But when you've given yourself out of sacrificial love, something deep inside you fills up. When you understand that this is the kind of love that God has for you and that's what you're willing to open yourself up to, something stays. This is long-lasting love. And we can't forget, too, in this story, you know, here's all the people that Jesus was uh, bit by bit trying to, to heal and make whole when his heart was shattered in two. And these are the same people that he's going to feed and have his disciples feed. It's, it's the, the stories tell us, the, the Gospels tell us that after he had gone and healed them all, and you can imagine a sweaty Jesus, maybe filled with blood on his fingers from the type of wounds he was healing. He sat down, exhausted, tired, and said, oh, let's feed them because if I, we send them home now, they'll faint on the way. And his disciples are like, Jesus, where are you going to get food for all these people? And he says, here, bring me whatever we have. And then he starts to defy the laws of physics, breaks bread, pours out some wine, has some fish, and all of a sudden 5,000 people have food to eat. And he looks on them and he feels deeply satisfied. And the story tells us that that's when he goes finally and takes a retreat. He goes up onto a mountainside to pray, sends his disciples off. You guys go ahead of me. And if you know the stories, this is about when he's going to walk on water too. But this type of love, just focusing in on it here, this type of love that Jesus exerts and shows us, I mean, it's the, it's the real deal. It changes everything. I think that if we really knew this type of love in our intimate relationships, we wouldn't have to just try to keep the desire up for one another in, that, in those relationships. We'd also learn to, to be right with the person, right at the worst times. Um, it also means, I think, in, in our parenting lives <laughs> that we know when to give our kids loving kindness and we know when to give them tough love as well. In our Christian community, it teaches us to outdo one another in showing honor to one another. It teaches us not to ask what we need, but what you need. What do you need? I always ask that question. How can I serve and bless you? I think in, especially in... in uh, Settings like a church like this where there's so many new people that come in and out of church. It's are we willing to give up our, our relationships of intimacy that we have established in order to welcome another person in? Are we willing to do that? That's the selfless kind of love that the kingdom of God is built upon. Or in community, communities are ragged because we're ragged people. But are we willing to rub up our edges against one another so that when we are hurt by each other, we don't just back up into hostility for each other? But are we willing to forgive and deeply understand that there are people that you encounter here that are going through so many things that you don't even know about? Everyone here is overcoming something. Can we have the eyes to see that? Or do we just get sort of our fists up when things don't go like we want them to? This is the kind of selfless love. This is the only kind of love that a Christian community can be built upon. Or society at large. What, is it, what would it do in society if this kind of selfless love were the norm? Not the, not the taking, giving, string kind of love, but the selfless love. What, what kind of society would this build? I mean, I think that this teaches us to band up with other people in this world for good who we may not agree with. We may have uh, deeply 
disagreeing kind of points of, of interest in our relationships, but we can still work together alongside of one another. Our, our, our world is filled today with these isolating um, binary two sides. Are you liberal or are you uh, conservative? And then our fists and our weapons go up. Christian community doesn't have this. It shouldn't, not with selfless love. It has people working across boundary lines, really listening to one another. Um, I just see so much of this self-righteous love, or unlove, I guess you'd call it, in the news, portrayed in the movies. But what, what would the world in our community look like? Now, I, I've seen recently some, uh, some really strong words going back and forth about the real racisms in our community that we need to address. I believe that as Christians who understand self-giving love, we should be the ones at the forefront of this conversation, not only challenging the evils of racism that exist in our, in our society, asking how can we give away power and give away privilege and give away a, a voice sometimes, but we should also be using loving kindness in our reproach to those who are still stuck in, in racism. Like, uh, if Jesus were here in this city, I think that he would be at the forefront of the challenging our, us as a community to figure this out. To, talk, to, to figure out how his selfless love would change Thunder Bay. I'll talk about this a lot more. I can, I'm, I'm can get really going on this. Um, the reality is love isn't love until it costs us something. We have not tapped into the power of Christian love until it has a sacrificial quality to it. And as we as a community explore these things, you know, we have to remember and keep our eyes fixed. I guess this is Jesus up here. <laughs> keep our eyes fixed on the kind of love that he's offering where there's, again, no infatuations, no using other people for higher purposes, not tools in God's hands, no slavery here, only freedom. So what do we do? Like, how do we as Christians as a community really really get this message deep down in our hearts. Oh, one thing that I, I forgot to say um, is, oh, I guess I did say it, but just to reiterate it, um, this, you know, when Jesus began saying these kinds of things, this is when people started walking away. When he really began talking about what love really means is when he started losing the crowd. When, when the rubber meets the road, when Jesus began opening up what this life and this Christian thing is all about. We're not going to gather huge crowds with this message. It's a hard message. But it's the only thing that lasts and the only thing that fills us up and the only thing that's really going to change this world. So what do we do? How do we as Christians make sure not to just be drawn up into the environment of selfless, of selfish unlove that our world is so filled with? I mean, first, begin to recognize the patterns of unlove in this world. Uh, and I would invite you this week to begin this journey with me. And just journal, how have I been used? How have other people used me for their ends? Again, it's, the, it's like a doorway. You open up that question and so much of this becomes clear. Read Matthew 14 through 21. For, again, for four weeks, we're going to be talking about Jesus' hard teachings where he, he's opening the window to us on what his love means, what it looks like. Read Matthew 14 through 21. Read it 10 times if you can. 
over the course of the next four weeks. This is the, the base of, of the gospel out of which I'm going to be drawing this material. And stay with the series. You know, in years past at Grassroots, um, if you've been here for a while, you'll know that I've kind of preached on long seasons of, of material. So the first year I was here, I preached all through a whole year on Moses and the Exodus generation. The next year, we followed Jesus throughout his whole ministry. Last year, we stuck with the theme of prayer and the Psalms and how to pray. So this year, I'm going to take a little bit different approach. Um, I'm going to, to do a little more shorter kind of series. So for example, like we're starting with this four, and then I'm going to jump in in four weeks to a series that's going to go verse by verse through the book of Philippians. And we're going to talk about what makes relationships really work. And then it's Christmas, and then we're going to be moving into... Oh, I do have a slide about this. Um, then it's Christmas, and then I'm going to do a marriage series in the new year. Uh, then talk about our core beliefs as Christians around Easter time, and parenting next, and our relationship with parents, uh, and then life in Christian community. But if, you, if, you're, if you're paying attention, and if you notice, there's a thread that moves through all of these, which is Christian love. So rather than preaching a year on love, I'm going to break it up into different focus series, but I'm going to be drawing this thread for us, this selfless Christian love, and how it's the only thing that, that make these things really work in our lives. And there's a lot of work to be done. We have to rescue the word love from our shallow, obsessed consumer culture. Uh, we have to recognize and come to a brace that's the only thing that's going to satisfy us. We have to recognize that God is asking us to become people who can love like Jesus. You, you remember, take on, um, take on the mind of Christ and love the same way he did. That's in Philippians. We'll get to that. And we have to understand how God is at work doing this in us and how to tend the growth of selfless love. Because... Uh, the greatest metaphor in all of Scripture for how this all works is baptism. John the Baptist, at the beginning of his ministry, was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism, this image of not just going with the flow of life, but sticking yourself down into the flow of something, staying firm and drowning. And when God's at work making us deeper lovers like Jesus, it will feel like we're drowning. That's the, that's the dis distinct feel that we get. I'm drowning here, God. And so we have to figure out what to do with that. How do we tend that work of God in our life? And you know, I'm going to um, be following this line of thought throughout the whole year, never abandoning our humanity. We are called to grow into a perfection of a Jesus-styled love which relates more to the DNA of sacrificial giving than to the feelings of desire and need and happiness. So here we have two would-be kings. One sat in the place of power. This is King Herod here at the end of Jesus. You remember this is the same Herod that beheaded Jesus, the beheaded John that was uh, kind of interrogating Jesus at the end of his life where he was ready to give his we have two would-be kings. One sat in a palace, making the most of a politically disastrous decision to take a human life because of his illegitimate wife, whose daughter he was just watching dance. And the Jesus here, who's bound for us, showing us what will really change the world. And as I see this image, I'm 
reminded of Paul's great teaching on love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but delights in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Every week, we have this bread and this juice. Because when Jesus said, when you do these things, you have to remember what this is going to take, because it's going to be very easy to forget. The world around you will offer you all versions of love, but if you're going to remember mine, meet together and take this meal in remembrance that I'm going to break my body for you. I'm going to shed my blood for you to show you what this love poured out looks like. It's going to go into the, the very corners of your life and change everything. That's why you have to chew on it. You have to digest it. You have to let it become part of that which nourishes you. And so every week we do this to remember the cross. We remember his sacrificial love. We remember the life of love that we're called to lead. I oftentimes use this as an opportunity to bring whatever is lingering on my heart to God because he wants you right where you're at. If you've got your fists up and you hate God or you have feelings of hate to God right now, he wants to know that. He wants to, he wants to hug you anyway. If you, if you have a prayer for someone in your life, this is an opportunity to pray for them. Whatever the case, however you've been hit today, I know this is a lot, this is kind of a fire hydrant kind of introductory sermon. Whatever, whatever you're taking away today, whatever is sticking with you, I invite you now to bring up, we have a couple more songs to sing as we open our hearts further to the Father. And um, the table here is set, and everyone here is welcome. <laughs>